So peace, peace, peace. I am Philip Roundtree, and you are tuned into episode, dang, I don't even know what episode. I think this is 23, either 23 or 24. You'll see it when I post it. Um, and so I'm joined by Brandon Blackburn Dwyer, who's a business growth expert and the founder of Grasshopper Strategies. Um, he's a gentleman who I met at uh, TEDx Wilmington. I believe it was their seventh annual conference back in September. And, you know, automatically, I think maybe it was because we both share beards. <laughs> Uh, we both live live here in the Philly area, but you know we we're just automatically drawn to one another, right? And it was just like out of all the people that were there, you know, it was just like it, it was a connection. Um, and then once I heard his TED talk um, that I would that I was speaking about, um, which was entitled "Embrace Your Inner Millennial," um, and then just previously watching it, I understood why because here I am, uh, born in 1983, a millennial. And, you know, there's a lot of myths that um, that we have in overall society with regards to what exactly a millennial is. And, and, you know, at the end, you know, he points out and I'll definitely let him go into detail as far as, you know, the TED talk. But we're all we're all millennials because we're living in the millennial. And it was just like, oh, OK, I get that. You know what I mean? I get that. That makes sense. Um, and I and I also and a person before we get you know deep you know he's also somebody who who has looked out for me um, in a, in a, an amazing way. Uh, for those who don't know, I'll be getting to into wellness coaching um, starting February first. Check it out on the site uh, on the tab that says coaching. And he's the one who did it for me. And you know I put out an APB on Facebook uh, probably about a week ago because I'm always late at doing stuff. I'm a procrastinator by nature. And I think I'll put uh, for somebody, you know, can anybody, you know, work on something for a nominal fee uh, before I go over to India? I get a, <laughs> I do a lot of my work on, on Fiverr um, because, you know, the cost of living is different um, and they, they do do great and exceptional work. You know, but I did want to give somebody here an opportunity. So he reached out to me and he did it pro bono. Um, and you know, that meant a lot to me outside of the fact that I'm a, a struggling. A struggling hey, we all are. We all are. <laughs> <laughs> but, but 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 what it was was it was just like listen you know here we have you know somebody i didn't know existed in this world six seven months ago and now here he is somebody who who's willing to help me out um and somebody who i, I was able to connect with at the ted talk experience um who doesn't look like me who may or may not have a, a similar background or story than me but here we are able to to interact in order to to push one another and to motivate one another. So, you know, I'm eternally grateful. And, you know, I'll always scream, you know, your services and just who you've been just as a person. And I'm just now getting to to know you. And I'll always speak about, you know, how thankful I am. Cause I, you know, stuff like that, um, you know, it it still eats at me. Cause I, you know, my goal is I'm like, how can I pay him back? No, no, right? no, no. How can I pay him back? You're like, no, nah, I believe in. I believe in karma. It is, I'm going to pay you back. You just don't know it. <laughs> but it's, it's going to be something. But, I'm, you know, I just want to say thank you formally because, again, it might just been been something basic for you and easy to do. Um, but, you know, for you to offer your service and you for believing in, in me as a person and helping with that, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply appreciative. So, you know, I just want to introduce the world to Brandon Blackburn. <laughs> 
So I guess my first question. Wait, 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 Sincerely, when I met you at the TEDx, part of the reason that I was drawn to you, and, and honestly, there were a handful of speakers. There were 27 speakers as a whole for, for people that weren't at these events. They were all fantastic in their own way, but there was really a handful of speakers that became like mini celebrities. And you got on stage and you were the immediate mini celebrity. Like people were just drawn to you. And I was drawn to you as a speaker because you lead with your heart and you backed up everything you said with, with just countless examples, but you didn't clog it up with countless examples, right? Particularly when we go into TEDx's, we all think we have to be the expert, right? But you, you came out, you showed your heart, you, you led with it as why you were talking about it and you were vulnerable. And I was drawn to you because that that's the ideal for me as a speaker. So I, I, I was not only did the message resonate, did I think it's important for everyone? And, and I've tried to share it with my friends. I, I just want to tell you, you as a person, as a speaker, as an individual, as a presence of that, you, you were one of the many celebrities. So, so continue to be that guy that leads with your heart because it, it draws people to you. And by the way, we're entrepreneurs. None of us will be here or where we want to be on our own. None of us will be here without people doing us something because they believe in karma or it's a favor or they give us their expertise for 10 minutes or an hour or a lifetime. So I, I may have helped you out, but I'll tell you that I owe so many people for the influence and the help they've given me. So I was happy to help, man, because I, I do believe in you and the coaching stuff that you're getting into is is phenomenal. It, it, you know, if you are the, the amount of heart you put into a room full of 150 people, if you can focus that on one person, my goodness, my goodness, is that person lucky? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So I, I, I know I'm not supposed to just make this a love fest, but you need to hear from as many people as possible that you're fantastic. So really. Well, well, listen, listen, now I'm learning to accept uh gratitude that's something i've been working on so i'll just i'm not gonna qualify it i'm just gonna say thank you i appreciate you i appreciate you from sharing the ted talk that's probably one of the other 17 people who uh, watched we'll talk about that because that's actually a whole thing for anybody that wants to do tedx is i made major mistakes post my tedx but we'll get into that <laughs> yeah yeah hey but you know what i i don't you know i always look at the numbers you know i watch yours and i see numbers and i'm like yo why aren't people seeing this? But what I, two days ago I watched, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with Nikki yeah. Giovanni. Okay, so you know Nikki Giovanni, you know famed writer, poet. Uh, she did a TEDx talk, and she only has about twenty thousand views. And I'm like, wait, what? Yeah, that's <laughs> you know she has twenty thousand views, and and Ray Lewis has like hundreds of thousands. And it's just like, okay, I don't feel bad because if one of the greatest literary writers of all time only has this amount, listen, my little couple hundred, I'm fine with that, right? I'm fine with that. I am okay. So yeah, but yeah, that's a, that's definitely a, a different conversation for sure. Um, but just to start, um, you know, I, if you can, uh, you know, let the people know who you are, what it is that you do, just a little bit of back, about your background. Sure. So I founded a company called Grasshopper Strategies, which I've used as the basis of my consulting for about 15 years on and off. Uh, I like to call myself a business growth expert or performance coach because I like to work with people on performance. That That is 
whether they're a solopreneur and how to improve themselves, become more accountable, accomplish their goals, or whether that's you know a business leader that's trying to understand how to improve their performance at work, whether they're an executive or or a lower level staffer, or all the way out to speaking and and that. I mean, I I've been lucky enough to have had a lot of experience and a lot of training, whether it's theater or professional television or news or radio. I was a radio host for two years, so I, I just love helping individuals succeed, and it's been a real pivot for me in the last year because my background in consulting and and corporate. I used to work with really big companies. I, I was very lucky. I spent a decade of my life living in Beijing, China. So um, that's one of those weird things. How was how that? I mean, it's one of those weird things. It, it completely, it, it, it eventually weirdly defines you. But because by the time I was 30, I had spent almost 50% of my life outside the United States. And some of that was really lucky because my parents were really encouraging and able to provide some travel opportunities when I was young. But once I turned 19, I started making the opportunities myself. I spent a year working in Central Asia on a nationwide human rights campaign on television and radio because I decided, like, I love college, but I wanted to take a year off, and somebody stupidly gave me a job to do this. Um, and that was amazing. I, I say stupidly because I don't know who gives a 19-year-old that job. I, uh, you know, maybe me. I don't know. Um, and, you know, and I, and I graduated college and I was working in politics and some other stuff. And I decided I wanted to go back to China. I'd been lucky enough to live there as a kid and I loved it. I, I you know, 10 years is a long time to spend anywhere. And I will say this, by the end of the 10 years, I was no longer there because it was China. I was there because the opportunities were there that happened to be in China. Uh, but it was powerful. It also meant um, we were at a TEDx. There was a guy that talked about find your China. That's a great TEDx. Somebody should Google that. Um, Marquibus, he was, it was a fantastic talk. And it resonated with me because he's younger than I am, but it was the same thing. China had weird opportunities. At 23 years old, I was teaching at a university, teaching American government foreign policy. And I got invited to be on television to comment on what were then the new six-party talk from North Korea. What 23-year-old belongs on TV? And so I went into that experience going, well, uh, okay. I mean, you know, I showed up like my, like, I was like wearing my dad's suit, you know, I had like my tie. I was like, yeah, I'm here. I can do this. Um, and I just sort of knuckled down and, and did the best I could. And the host at the end of it went, went from super skeptical, who is this kid to, hey, do you think you can come back? And I, I just kept grinding at it and kept working at it and doing the best I could with these weird, wonderful opportunities that I was so lucky to have but I just kept trying to do my best with them. And I ended up being on TV once or twice a week on average. I did over 200 episodes of live commentary. I got a job full-time on the radio doing news, talk radio for three hours a day, five days a week, which was wonderful and one of the most fun jobs I've ever had. I did miss working to develop individuals, but from an intellectual perspective, it was awesome. So that gave me a lot of opportunity. And then I had to come home to the US, which I love, I fell in love, I got married, and I had to find ways to duplicate not only those opportunities, but those skills here. And that was a lot harder, I gotta tell you. So it was a long way of saying I've done some crazy stuff. I've been very lucky. I, 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 will, I will try to do this at the beginning and early so somebody says, yes, I'm a white cisgendered male. Yes, I have privilege. Yes, my parents took me to travel. Yes, I had the resources to move to China. Yes, I had the connections to get a job when I was there. Um, and when you're a white guy in China or a foreigner in China, you get opportunities that not everyone gets. I, I do not take any of that privilege, any of those opportunities for granted. 
I, I like to believe I worked hard to capitalize on them, but I understand that I was put into positions because of some of my background that empowered me to be able to succeed that not 99.9% of people do not get. And I, I, I count myself incredibly lucky on that. I just want to make sure I say that because I, I, you know, I don't want to have to say it every single time I talk about getting lucky. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, you know what it is. I, I call that the 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 B rabbit, the Eminem effect on Eight Mile when he got on stage and he was freestyle. He said, "Listen, I'm gonna tell you everything about me." So then, you know, now you can't say anything because I've already said it. So let's get that out the way. No, I appreciate that. But it's it's great that you 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 know you're aware. Uh, you know, you have that perspective. You're aware. A lot of us, um, you know, are being forced to <laughs> forced to be aware, made aware of our privilege. That's what the Me Too movement, that's what a lot of things that are taking place. It's because, listen, you know, okay, you're not aware of your privilege, so now we're going to force you to become aware. And, you know, which is critical and which is necessary, especially if we're talking about growth. One, one aspect, I, you know, I know you mentioned it, just about this transition from China back to the States, because, you know, we're talking about a, a culture shock. You know, we're not just talking about technology. You know, we're talking about getting assimilated back in, into this way of life. So how was that for you? And, and how, how, how did you cope with that? And how are you coping? You know, it still happens. It's still ongoing. Uh, culture shock is definitely the right word. I, I always say that I had two large culture shocks in my life. One was when I was 18 years old, I moved from Northern New Jersey where I went to high school and, and, and had all this background. And I did a year of college in small town, Michigan. That was one of the biggest culture shocks I've ever had. I, I moved from Northern New Jersey where I'd been all this luck and, and wonderful things with my parents and travel. And I worked at the United Nations as a teenager and all these things to small town Michigan where no one in my freshman year class of about 500 people had been outside the state of Michigan. And maybe there was a handful. I would tell them I was from New York and they'd be like, oh, you know, and then I would in conversation be like, oh, and then I've been to, you know, China and pe people literally would walk away mid conversation because they just didn't have a frame of reference. And, it, and I didn't, and I learned to kind of keep that side quieter as I got to know people. And the second one was when I moved back to the U.S. and that was twofold. One, it was hard to hit home in the U.S. because I thought I was kind of the, I, I had done well in Asia. I, you know, it was a bunch of different stuff. I was like, yeah, I'm awesome. I, I've been on TV. I, I'm cool. And, and then I'd walk into like producers at TV stations and they'd say, you, you have 200 appearances on TV. Uh, yeah, I can show them to you. You know, yeah, I'd like to, to I've never heard of you. I don't, I don't believe you get out. What? Well, but I have, but I have them. They were on, like, you can see the, no, no, never heard of you. You never been on Fox news. Get out. You know, oh, oh, okay. Okay. And then I got this job at a company that was led by millennials. I talk about this when I do my longer version of my TEDx. And so I had all this background. All my coworkers growing up had been older, Gen X, baby boomers. I started working at 15 in offices. And now I was working in millennial heaven. I had a 31-year-old founder as the boss. Um, all my coworkers were in their 20s. We were working on global poverty, like the most millennial, globalist, you know, approach thing ever. And my experiences, my approach did not mesh with my colleagues. You know, the, 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 the attitudes, the, the approaches were so different that I literally launched what has now been five years of re research into how to bridge that gap. That despite being born into the millennial generation, my experiences made me the, not the automatic millennial. And so 
I had to connect. I had to step back. I had to humble myself. I had to listen. I had to learn. And then I had to find ways to utilize what I thought was good experience, which I, I still believe is, and empower other people with that good experience without coming at them from the top down. And that, that was a big change for me, not because I, I wanted to come from the top down, but just because I was used to working in more hierarchical art, uh, areas. I was used to working with baby boomers and Gen Xers that like to be a little more hierarchical. And so it was an adjustment. I was successful, I believe. We, we, we did great things. I loved working at Global Citizen, but it, it took a while. And, it, and it's still going on, to be honest. Yeah, yeah no, it's, you know, it, it's great that you brought that up. It's funny, I've been having conversations recently about, about this quote-unquote inter, intergenerational uh, gap that exists. Um, J. Cole, who, who's a rapper, he just came out with a song called Middle Child. And I think what he's really talking about, he, he's talking about um, being in, the, in his 30s, being a millennial. He's talking uh, in, that, in that, that middle area where, as far as in hip-hop, you have your Grandmaster Flashes, your Jay-Zs, your, your Tupacs and your Biggies. And then you have, I call them the littles, you know, your little Yachty's, your, your Migos's and your 21's and all these people who my son, who's 19, listens to. And, you know, he's talking about, um, you know, just how difficult that is navigating those spaces um, because you can, you can relate and with, understand what the older generation is saying, but you know it's important to listen to, to what the younger generation is saying. I look no further than myself. I, you know, I have a, you know, my son, my daughter's brother, who's 19. He's in college down at North Carolina a &T. He actually called me at two o'clock in the morning and tell me about his, his African-American history class, which, um, which was big for me because it was just like, I'm starting to see him grow. I'm starting to see the wheels turn. Um, and he's just not accepting the status quo. So that was great, even if it was two in the morning. But... <laughs> But, you know, when we talk about music and it's, you know, whether we're talking about within business um, or what have you, you know, I would shun his music. You know, I'm like, I'm not listening to that nonsense. Um, he kept saying, you know, they call me Jermaine. Jermaine, listen to this rapper, Triple X Tentacion. Um, God bless the dead. He's like, listen to him, listen to him. He talks about depression. You're depressed. <laughs> and I'm like, whatever. You know, it's like a running <laughs> joke that we had. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, no, I'm not listening to him. And so what happened is, you know, the rapper ended up getting killed uh, June of last year. And I was sitting in a coffee shop owned by Mark Lamont Hill, uh, who got fired for his comments on Israel and uh, Palestine relations. And I was sitting there and I saw he got killed. I was sitting there writing an ebook that I was not invested in. I was just putting it out to put it out. And I saw his death. And so I was like, let me write an article about him. I felt compelled. And so I'm listening to his music and I'm like, yo, he's able to say the words depression, anxiety. Um, he's yeah. able to, he, he was so, he was an empath. He, he understood, even if he made mistakes and he had domestic violence charges against him and what have you, he had so much awareness about his own mental health at the age of 20 that I just got at the age of 33, 32. And I'm just like, unfortunately, if it, if it was because of his death that I found out. I, I wasn't listening to my son. I wasn't trying to understand. I'm like, nah, they're trash. You need to listen to rappers from my generation. And it was just like, you know what? If, if the goal is to connect, we, we, it first starts with listening, right? It first starts with listening um, and having that desire to connect. 
And so in one of the groups that I run, I held the intergenerational conversation on hip hop um, from Grandmaster Flash the Message to a Meek Mill song from two months ago. And it's just like 35 years apart. They're talking about the exact same things. But just because the package is a little different, right? And it looks a little different. You know, how it's being communicated is a little bit different. Um, that we, you know, we older generations, generations older than mine, we tend to shun it, right? And we say, nah, that's, that's not right. And again, it takes a lot of, you have to humble yourself. You have to put your ego to the side. Um, and especially if you're trying to grow, no matter, you know, whether we're talking about in the business setting or what have you, because otherwise you're doing yourself a disservice because they're going to keep moving with or without you, right? And so you you don't want to get lost in the shuffle. So, yeah, no, I, I completely, uh, you know, understand it and agree with that transition and how difficult that transition can be, Um you know, and what you need to do to reinvent yourself. We always need to reinvent we, ourselves. We do, and I, and I really think, you know, it's, you know, I'm going to tell you that I am not as good as music just across the board. I, my wife, it doesn't even matter the genre, but, I, you know, my, the, all of us have different things, right? Like, I can see a movie, and I can see it five years later, and I can repeat the scene and what's happening in the plot. My wife can, I can hear the same song a hundred times, and my wife is like, you still don't know the words? What's wrong with you? Um, you know, you know, she, she loves listening to me sing along with the radio because she's like, you know, that's none of the like that's not that's not even one of the words. Like you, you didn't get anything. Um, but music is such an interesting perspective because there's a neurological aspect to when we absorb music that when we are teenagers in the in development of our brains, music plays a larger part in almost every culture. This goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and your brain gets wired with certain rhythms and certain forms and certain jingles and certain um, structures to bridges and things like that in your music that when you hear it and you're not exposed to it on a regular basis, that becomes comforting to you. And so when you grow up with that and all of a sudden you're in your late 20s and your brain is wired differently and you hear something that doesn't use the same core patterns, the, came, sort of, uh, the same core structures of the bridge, of the, of the refrain of that, it can sound chaotic to you. And, it, and it's not about taste, but it can be. So you do have to kind of absorb yourself a little bit more. you got to pull yourself out of that comfort zone. And it's the same thing with all of life. If, you're, if your brain and your life is one experience, and now all of a sudden you're in a different one, it, it feels chaotic. It feels like white noise. It feels like social distortion going on in front of you. And I think you interestingly hit on what I try to talk about in Embrace Your Inner Millennial, which is that while there is distortion and there is separation and there are changes that lead to us being different, doing things at different times in our lives, the same core aspects, the same struggles, the same dreams, most of those go across age, demographics, race, gender, identity, culture, history, everything. What does everybody want? Comfort. What does everybody want? Uh, the ideal life. Now, that ideal life may look different. That ideal life may include a different type of partner, a different looking partner, a different background partner, whatever that is, but it's still a partner. Now, that's not for everybody as well. Maybe it's independence. Maybe it's, I want 1,700 partners. Maybe it's that. But it's comfort in some choice being made about how you choose to align or not align yourself with other people. And that cuts across everything. So for me, when I try to work with groups to find that common ground, it's like, okay, what are our common desires and wants? We may say them. We may accomplish them differently. They may look completely differently in the outcome. But the core desire is often the same. And, and you're hearing that in the music. 
You're hearing that in the message. It may not have been as vulnerable with Grandmaster Flash about depression, but it's still about struggle. And we may have, we may have told it in stories that are about violence in the streets and, and, and Tupac and Snoop coming up through, you know, the West Coast violence and all that kind of stuff. And, and maybe modern rappers don't use that type of narrative structure to talk about the struggle, but it's still the same struggle. It's still the desire to rise above whatever is holding you back. At least that's my perspective. I mean, I, I understand that it changes, but I don't know, would you agree with that? I mean, like to some extent, the same concept, the same desire to rise above, to take control, to have the security, to have the safety is always sort of a, a driver of all of our things, whether it's love songs or, or ego-driven songs or, or struggle-related songs. No, no, I, I completely agree. Again, it just it just sounds yeah, different, right? We we all have that you know common goals. Um, you know, we talk about you know we were talking about Trump earlier. You know, we talk about his core base. His core core base has the same wants, needs, desires as I do. I mean, you know, all things considered, yeah. you know, in certain areas, in some areas, we're a little bit Probably, different, right? But we're talking be about more aligned with what you want than they realize they are. <laughs> They, they, they should be less aligned with often than what he's talking about, but that's for a different conversation. Facts. <laughs> Facts. You know, we, you know, we talk about things about we want acceptance. We want belonging. This is something just unique to the uh, endemic to the human experience. And that's what we all desire. Now, we all have different paths in, in getting there. Right. And we, you know, we, we, we tend to judge others people paths to get to the same goal because we feel our our path is uh should you know is the right path or what have you but yeah no i i, I completely agree and we want to do it um with as much comfort as possible because being uncomfortable where the you know it's become cliche where the true growth happens um we still we want to be as comfortable as possible as we're trying to relieve uh, accomplish whatever our goals are. Um, but you you hit on some of the you know some of the myths that exist with regards to millennials. So can you just touch on just a, a oh, few? Sure. So uh, one of the more fundamental ones, and I talk about a lot in my TEDx, but I also talk a lot about it, is is misconceptions around family life and home life that millennials get blasted for being irresponsible because they don't want, and I'm, I'm using air quotes for anybody listening online, want. Uh, a house, or they don't want to have children, or they don't want to have a traditional family life. Um, for me, not only is this uh, something that isn't true, it, it is actually, the, the myth is the harmful part. So millennials, when they are uh, polled, when they were done by a lot of different surveys, when they graduate college and high school, they actually say that they want a family and a home at a higher rate than their previous Gen X cohorts when they were graduating high school and college. So the desire is there. Why the myth exists is because Gen Xers and baby boomers were able to do that in their 20s. Millennials are not able to do that in their 20s. And there's a number of different reasons. It's not just woe is me finance, it's education. And this is where I talk a lot about the changing expectations. Millennials will be and already are the most formally educated generation. Across every demographic, they are more formally educated than any generational peer. And that's a great thing. That's an accomplishment we should all be excited. But just math then tells you family, house, stability comes later. Because to be formally educated, you graduate college at 22 or 23. To be 
get a master's degree. Now it's 25 or 26. You took a couple years off in the middle, 27, 28. Good Lord. You want to do two masters? You want to do something else? You want to do something else? You want to do an internship? Because now to get a master's, you got to interns because that's another way to get us all to work for free or work for nothing. I mean, you know, you want to do all that. Now you're 28, 29, 30. And you're, and that's when you're finally finishing your formal education, which is five or six years later than your Gen X peers at the same, at the same stage in life. So then you're trying to save money for a house. Now it still takes four or five years at least to save money. Now you're not buying a house till you're 30, 31, 32, 33, 34. A lot of people, maybe they have kids earlier, maybe they don't. A lot of people still want to do the traditional, you know, get married, buy a house, have a kid. Now that's not for everybody and I'm not prescribing it to anybody by any means. But if you do do that progression, you're literally in your mid thirties before you're anywhere near that traditional picket white fence with a family, a, a wife and, and, and a house. So that changes the demographics and millennials are now finally reaching mid thirties. And if you look at millennials in their mid thirties, the percentage that have accomplished those kind of life milestones is exactly the same as the percentage that accomplished it for baby boomers. Exactly the same as the percentage that accomplished it for Gen Xers. They're just doing it five, six, seven, and eight years later because of aspects that are well out of their control. So that, that's one of the major myths and one of the major causes I think we need to recognize. It's also when you talk about companies, they have to not only recognize that millennials are often more formally educated. That doesn't mean smarter. doesn't mean more capable. That doesn't mean anything else. But they do have financial burdens with student loans that are unlike anything human history has seen anywhere in the world. And that changes their stress when they try to get a job. That changes their desire to have a higher salary. That changes their need to have flexibility to have a side hustle or not be able to afford childcare for their kids. All of those things absolutely change how they approach and what stress they are facing that, that is just completely new. No, listen, I, I completely agree. You know, according to my student loans, I should be a, a, a neurosurgeon, right? <laughs> I tell people, listen, I, I, you know, I have a bachelor's, I have two master's degrees, you know, I owe about $120,000. And that is a stressor for some, you know, for me, I'm resolved with the fact that, listen, I'm, I'm going to live my best life. I recognize what's there. Um, you know, I'm not going to stress myself out. But unfortunately, I'm in the minority who, who can look at it and say, you know what, it is just money. Because I, I think part of my background in going through the depression and the anxiety and the suicidal thoughts is that I recognize that there's more to life, right? There's more to life than, than money. So it's easy why I'm able to, to walk away and be an entrepreneur and say, it is what it is. And I'm gonna try my bones at that because I recognize how short life really can be and that I owe it to myself to self-actualize whatever that, whatever that looks like. Another point that you brought up which now I'm sitting there thinking it's like aha moments when you talk about uh, how how millennials are doing things later in life and how, uh, you know, they shouldn't be looked down upon. And so it had me thinking that a lot of my um, a lot of my friends that are women in particular. Right. They're very they were very hard on themselves at 28, 30, early 30s because they're like, I should have X, Y and Z. And so now when I'm, I'm thinking about it, I'm like, well, yeah, you know, you did, you know, your parents' generation, 
they weren't striving to attain the master's degrees um, to gain the career experience. And so that's going to push everything back, right? And so now when I do have these conversations with them or when I'm out having these, these discussions, and not just women, but men as well, um, who desire to have families who feel like they should be further along in the personal aspects of their life, it's like, listen, look at the difference, right? Look at what you desire to attain. And as you said, it's the consequence of it. Right. I, you probably could have been married if you if you didn't desire. I want to say couldn't might have been married, but, you know, you might have been more open to the possibilities because you would have had more time. You would have been your focus would have been elsewhere. So, yes, yeah, so no, high, high performers generally judge themselves by checklists, rightly or wrongly. It can be corrosive or it can be empowering. It often depends on your mindset, how you go at it. Right. If you see a to do list as something that drags you down then that's a problem. If you see a to-do list is awesome, now I know what I'm focusing on, I know what my goals are, then, then awesome. But high performers judge themselves by that. And high performers want to focus on accomplishing things. You know, multitasking is a myth. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a whole different thing. So, But if you're going to be in school and working while getting your master's, you're already multitasking every single se second of your day. Now you want to add in the complexities of a relationship. Now you want to add in the complexities of a relationship potentially with a dependent like a child or, or an older family member. All of a sudden, your brain went from one to maybe two major goals and all the complexities that are in them, accomplishing school and being paid enough to you know, eat ramen on a Friday, um, to now all of a sudden I got all these other issues. And you're not going to necessarily have the emotional bandwidth to truly engage with another person. You're not gonna have the emotional bandwidth to recover when stressors in a relationship, which always happen, come up. I know I'm married and I'm very lucky and I love my wife, but she is a passionate, opinionated woman who has taught me to argue in emotional settings. She has taught me how to do that. And I love that. But I know if I'd been getting my master's degree or if I had been you know, traveling the way I was when I was in China and I needed the emotional bandwidth, that it takes me now to have made those steps and those strides in my relationship, I wouldn't have overcome them. I could not have handled this relationship when I was 25. I could not have understood the steps and the value of it when I was 28. I met my wife at the incredible lucky moment when I was 31, 32 years old, and I sort of was able to do it. We've grown together. That's not everybody's story. And when you look back and you put it on yourself and you're like, well, why didn't I have the emotional ability or the timing or the space or the or the, the the scheme or the approach that got me this at 25 my mother was married or my father was married or my uncle was married or my friend in delaware or my friend in ohio was married don't do that your emotional bandwidth is going to come when you have the ability to focus on it if you want to be a high performer and you need to focus on something before you have that focus on it do it the best you can become comfortable with that adjust to it emotionally, and then take on other stressors. There's no right way or wrong way, but at least give yourself the time to say, maybe this isn't the right time right now. Yeah, no, listen, I, I completely agree. And, and what I keep hearing is, again, we're talking about expectations, expectations, expectations that we have of self. And, you know, that makes me think about the, just the entrepreneur in general, okay. right? And we, and we see the rates of depression and anxiety, um, they're, they're pretty much consistent uh, with the general population when we're talking about one in three, one in four will experience depression and anxiety. But whether we're talking about the millennial 
um, the person who has the expectations of family or what have you, or the entrepreneur who's putting themselves out there to, to, to try and start a business or because they believe in something, it's still that expectation. And when you're, you're, the idea in your head never matches up to what's truly happening, right? And so we see that, again, whether it's, it, it just happens that the millennial and the entrepreneur, especially now, are going, they're hand in hand. They're the same individual. And so they're adding more stress onto themselves, which um, makes for, you know, a, I don't want to say a deadly combination, but definitely something detrimental to your wellness. Uh, I know for me personally as an entrepreneur, and I'll definitely let you, no, you know, talk about your experience. I know the... No, no, I was just going to say, go ahead, go ahead. I want to hear it. Oh, okay. The last, the last five months that I've really been an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, <laughs> uh, because I was dabbling, I had my foot in, but it is a big difference between having your foot in the water and you're, um, and somebody just throw you, and that's what they do. Being an entrepreneur, you're literally throwing yourself into a two feet pool <laughs> at first, and you just, you just hope it's deep enough, <laughs> you know, or hope the injuries aren't as severe because, you know, it, you know, it is difficult. It is difficult. Just last week, um, you know, I have I have major bills. I decided to be an entrepreneur after I, I lived the American dream of the house and the car and the kid who goes to private school. And so now I'm stepping out and I recognize, you know, listen, I, even though I say money isn't everything, I recognize that I acquired a lot of responsibilities. Um, again, it's a consequence of my decisions and that people should be mindful of, especially going forward. You can want a child, you can want a family, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're, that you're ready for it. You're never ready for it, but you want to put your, your position, yourself in a position um, to where you're, you're in the best state possible. And so, you know, just last week, I had to pay my daughter's tuition, $675. And I'm looking at my account and I'm saying, man, that's say yeah. right <laughs> now, you know, and I'm like, Okay. And I have people that know me again. If I could talk about depression and anxiety, I could talk about my finances, right? And so I'm looking at it and I'm just like, because this month hasn't been one of my amazing months. Now, February is, is looks amazing right now. And, and it's just like, soon as it came out, my mood changed, right? I started questioning, is this the right decision? Am I doing this right? Should I just go back and just use one of these degrees and get a job, an office job? Um, but I believe in my abilities, right? And so, it, you know, me recognizing that, you know, I compare and contrast myself to millennials uh, who aren't um, as secure in what the outcome can be. Because I recognize, listen, you know what I get, you know, if they take my house, they take my house, right? If they take X, Y, and Z, because again, I don't put the value on these things that society might have. But I just think about those who don't have a family that they desire and they don't have the child, you know, and now here they are out as an entrepreneur trying to do things and the results aren't immediate, right? What those stressors look like and the toll that it can take on you. We see entrepreneurs who are, you know, taking their own lives. I know so, I know so many entrepreneurs who are now coming out and saying, you know, listen, you haven't, I haven't spoke, I haven't been a speaker in the last three, five years because I've been depressed about the, the way my life has been going, right? 
And so if you can just speak on, you know, entrepreneurial wellness, your experience with it and how you've been able to maintain. Well, one, I, I just, again, I'm going to preface this. No one size fits all. You know this. What works for you doesn't work for somebody else. But, but I do think that there are, for me, going into being an entrepreneur, there, there's two things that I think are important that everyone needs to get a better sense of. And one is I think that we are misserved by the world we are in right now if we want to be an entrepreneur because – the, the boom of the 90s and the early and then like the early 2000s with entrepreneurs, when you think of entrepreneurs in, in, in the broadest, broadest sense of the word, who do we think about? We think about the Mark Zuckerbergs. We think about, you know, Dr. Dre, who had so much talent, so much drive, so much incredible ability that the man built three different empires that he lost. <laughs> to unscrupulous other people and kept building them, you know, so we're not all going to be that good. You know, I, <laughs> like, I wish I could say I could lose three, three empires and build a fourth. I don't know if I'm that guy, but those people blew up either because they're, they are so unique individuals or because the tech world meant that there is a very, very, very tiny group of entrepreneurs that started and two months later, they're making a million dollars or they have a product that immediately scales. So even if it took them three or four or five years to get there, it scales to the size where it's not, uh, you know, a $10,000 every quarter, it's $10 million every quarter. And so that's the image we see compounded by the fact that we live in an Instagram world where these perfect entrepreneurs show us quote unquote, their lives. And it looks perfect. And they get on stages and the Gary V's, I mean, he talks about, you know, how, how hard it's been. And I, and I do appreciate that, but he's still at the end of the day, paints this world that if you just keep grinding, you'll be super successful. That's not always true. And you'll be successful at a scale. You look at Russell Brunson and what he's done with click funnels, the scale that he's able to achieve 99.99999% of entrepreneurs aren't going to come up with a product that could scale ever to that level. You, that's just not a reality. We, we can't have literally industry shifting products come out every other day, it'd be nuts. So entrepreneurs are more about how do I create a business that gets me a couple thousand dollars a month, that gets me a consistent client, that gets me the next six months of predictable revenue. And that's not the models we see. That's not the role models we often think of. Unless we have a coach or a mentor who's alongside us, if we're looking online or on TV or these people that are promising guru type, res type results, that's not what we see. Now, the other part that, that, that I think deserves us is that we live in a world where people are not taught. And I don't know, I, I don't really like the generational, oh, Gen X was better at this or baby boomers were better at this. I, I will just say that we're not taught now how to do personal finance how to approach personal finance. And I don't, when I say that, I don't mean invest in the stock market or become a bond trader. I'm talking about you looking at your account. I have a $675 bill that leaves me with $125 on my balance. Can I survive for the next week on that $125? What do I need to do? Because that creates so much stress for the entrepreneur, for that person. It, 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 I have literally lost days of productivity where I have spent the first half of the day balancing our checkbook, balancing my wife's expenses, balancing my expenses, looking out, saying, yeah, we, we can make it for another two months without it being a crisis. But man, now I'm all jammed up. I can't be creative. I can't be confident. I can't call, go out and call somebody and tell them I'm going to make them rich if I can't make myself rich.
you know, I, I, that jams us up. Those two opposite ends of the spectrum problems leave us, I think, very uncared for in the middle, which is where the large, large majority of successful entrepreneurs are in that middle. Most small business owners don't gross a million dollars ever over the course of the entirety of their business. It's like 98% of them never make that threshold. And yet when we get to be an entrepreneur, that's what we think is gonna happen in a year. And that's what other people think. Oh, oh, you own your own business? You must have a Ferrari. No, I don't have a Ferrari. I have a 15-year-old car that needs an oil change and I don't have $400 that the car place wants to do to do a full overhaul because I'm an entrepreneur and that $400 is going to my Facebook ads next month to make me money for two months from now. <laughs> and that... Hopefully. Hopefully. I mean, right, you know, I mean, I'm only going to be closer to the gambling machine. You know, Vegas and Facebook ads about the same. But that's not the reality we think about when we get into this. We think, oh, I know another entrepreneur. He talks about coaching C-suite executives. I've coached C-suite executives and I still don't have a million dollars in my bank account. Those people became C-suite executives because they don't want to pay you more than your, more than the market rate. They want to pay you $12 to do what you should be paid $200 to do. Listen, I've, I've had that experience just this morning and you know, again, I'm a, I'm an open book, and I don't care. It could be it could be bad business. Um, you know, I so I sent out a lot of feel a lot of things. You know, people take for granted as far as being an entrepreneur is you know a lot of the the legwork, you know, the individual legwork that needs to take place. And so I'm sending out emails, you know, 50 emails, you know, to the same schools for four consecutive weeks. So my thing is. Just don't disrespect me and ignore me. Just tell me no, right? That's don't all I. Me. Open I, it and say no. <laughs> exactly. So you know, I'm just going to assume that you didn't get it, and so I'm going to continue to send it. But you know, my alma mater, Bloomsburg University in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, they want me to come out next month, and you know, they they gave me a you know, she hit me up this morning and said, "Listen, give you an honorarium of five hundred dollars." And I looked at him like 500 and I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I need $500 right now. Right. Um, but I, I had to recognize that, you know, this is going against what I've gotten. The, the average of my last five has been between 2,500 and 5,000. And I'm like, as hard as it is to say no to this 500 that I need, I have to pay bills. I have all, to do all of these things, but I had to say no. You know, I had to say no. And, and I don't know what that's going to be and what that's going to look like, but, you know, we, we have to be mindful that, you know, and again, it, it, I have to be okay with that no, you know, that I get, you know, because I have to stand firm in where I am and what I see a lot of, you know, some entrepreneurs go wrong is, again, you have these million-dollar goals, and I have these million-dollar goals of, but I also know, you know, what I feel my value is, right? And that I can't run to every opportunity because I can't chase the dollar, right? Because that's another way to that you'll be emotionally burned out, right? You're, you're going to de ultimately devalue yourself um, because you're running mm -hmm. after, you know, every opportunity. So when you said, like, listen, they're saying the market is saying, or we just feel that you're worth $12, yeah. Um and, you know, and just what that, the toll that that takes, you know, your product might not be worth, 
$500, you know what I mean? But listen, you might have to sell it, you know, four or 500 and be okay with the lack of response and just believe in yourself. A lot of times that, you know, we, if we don't get it within the first month, within the first six months, because like you said, we're seeing the Gary V's, despite him being one of the more as transparent as he yeah, can he, be. He, he and, I, and I applaud that. So, you know, I'm not trying to knock on the guy before yeah. anybody goes, oh, you hate on Gary yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think he's actually more honest about the struggle than <laughs> almost anybody else. <laughs> yeah, but it, I, I don't think it do it. And listen, I, you know, I went and saw, you know, E.T. the hip hop preacher. I think he's dope for what he does. But what I think is no different than a, a pastor at church. Um, it doesn't, you know, the words that come out doesn't do the, the process justice. And that's where I am now and being mindful of the things. Even, you know, I talk a lot about therapy, you know, go to therapy. Listen, I'm by me saying go to therapy, I'm still not doing how hard that process is any justice. And I think with entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial wellness, we're really not even doing it justice when we're having these these conversations. We're even just giving a glimpse of, because we're not talking about the emotions. When I sat there in that moment and what it felt like to sit, I, I couldn't even press send, right? I had to get, you know, my girlfriend to press send button for me because it was just that hard emotionally for me to know that I'm sitting here turning down something that I really need, right, going forward. Um, so yeah, so no, definitely, I definitely understand, you know, what you're we, saying. I mean, you know, look, I think, I think it is the life of an entrepreneur that, the, 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 you know, <laughs> I, I, I've done a, I've done a mini talk where I talk about the, 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 the power of yes and the importance of no, you know, that, that, that you want to say yes, you want to get your name out there. You want to help other entrepreneurs that you believe in. Um, we talked about that early on. I think that's an important part, but you also need to remember it's important to say no. Um, $500, that's, you know, that's 25% at least, if not less, of your normal fee. Uh, I had a client literally say yes in email, say yes in person, say yes on the phone. I was, I was already planning my travel. They're up in New York. I was planning my travel. I was already getting into their project. And they literally went to sign the dotted line in him and send me the check. And they come back to me. They go, we want to give you 60% of, of, of what we agreed on. And I, and I came back to them. I said, look. I, we've already talked about this. I already gave you a package deal. You know, I'm already, you know, we're, we're, we're almost half of what, if I actually broke all the things I'm doing out for you, if I was charging those individually, what I would do for you. You want to give me 60% of that? Oh yeah, we just think, you know, no. no. If, if I'm, my job is to teach you to be better at business, why would I take that? And that was hard. I gotta tell you, I mean, I, I literally, that put me in a situation, I had to borrow money because I turned down that contract. I had to borrow money, which I hate doing. I hate doing, I've had to do it. I'm going to admit that it comes to someone who comes to my family and I'm super lucky. We talk about privilege, super lucky, but I had to borrow money to close out the Christmas spending of the year. And I'm not talking, I was buying people diamonds and jewelry. I'm talking, you know, homemade, you know, the stick on little things on the plate with the macaroni. I'm talking about that level of Christmas gift. Um, you know, I had to borrow money because I turned that down. And it was another, cause I was lucky enough to have a wife who was also entrepreneurial, who, who was like, no, she's like, Brandon, you have coached me for years to, to say no to that. You have to say no. And, and, and that, that's mental fortitude. That's emotional fortitude. And it's, 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 you know, it's a risk, right? You, you need that money. So you don't know where the next $10 is coming from, but you're going to turn down 500 or 60% of a fee or, 
this is where I would say, I mean, you talk about coping mechanism. I know we, we, that was where you wanted to talk about, like, what do we do to cope, right? This is where yeah. you need a couple of different things. Any successful entrepreneur has a support network. And I think we need to be more intentional about who that support network is and how we utilize them. If we're lucky enough to have a partner, girlfriend, boyfriend, non-gender, non-binary partner, whatever the heck you want to call it, or it's more formalized with marriage, or it's just a best friend, that person it can be an outlet. But you also need to talk to them and you need to clarify what you're talking about. My wife and I have this, it makes it sound very nerdy, but we literally have conversations where we're venting about work because she runs a small business as well. And, and, and I, I'll ask her, I said, well, babe, Anita, do you want me to talk to you as your husband right now or as your consultant? And, and she'll say, uh, husband, or she'll say, uh, consultant, because my answers are going to be different and my approach is going to be different. And she does the same for me. And it may sound cheesy and overly, you know, exact to do that. But the difference is your consultant tells you how to whip your business into shape. Your spouse talks about your emotions and tries to make it softer and tries to understand what you're going through in that area. And if you try to combine the two, bad things can happen. And this is where I would agree. If, if you have any concern about your emotional fortitude, which all of us should, by the way, there's no weakness in admitting this. I have concerns about my emotional fortitude. Therapy, counseling, emotional side of that is crucial. Also on the other side, a business coach, somebody that understands you and can whip your business in their shape and can talk about it and can be an idea sounding board and is there to focus on business is incredibly important. Sometimes you can get those from friends and family, but know the role they're playing and tell them the role they're playing. I have mentors who play the role of you know, business coach with me who I don't formally pay to do that. So I'm not telling everybody to go out and spend $500 an hour on a business coach. That may not be a reality, but find a mentor and tell them you're here to help me on the business side. Please focus on that with me. And then we'll get a beer and we'll talk about our lives afterwards. You can do that. You can, you can have that input and that that's, that's, how you survive. That's how you survive saying no to $500. That's how you survive sticking to your guns. That's how you survive through months of constant external output and not getting a client. That's the only way that I know of. And there's a lot of other things we can do for ourselves, but structurally you need those two, those, those two foundational points. No, listen, I, I completely agree. Um, you know, with regards to the tips, definitely having a, having a tribe, uh, you know, we're, we're in this, you know, era of, you know, and the guy Drake, you know, he had a song, No New Friends, right? And it's just like, at this stage of the game, especially as an entrepreneur, my, my goal is to make new friends this year, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly, because you, you recognize how important it is. You, you can't do it alone. And, for, you know, and I battle with myself at times, you know, because it is hard for me to... Um, and I think this is a part of, you know, when we talk about masculinity, when we're talking about, uh, even though masculinity is not gender specific, but when we talk about being a man and how men are conditioned, that you're conditioned to do it yourself, not to ask for assistance, especially with finances, because you don't want to be deemed broke, uh, a loser, you can't do it, you know, you can't make things happen. And so, yeah, you do need that level of, of vulnerability in order to to make progress, in order to progress. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's definitely critical. Again, I'm, I'm trying to make new friends because, I, and I recognize how good that can be for just my growth in general, as a first and foremost, as a person, having new ideas 
um, that I otherwise might not have known. So if I didn't, if I just blew off your TEDx, um, and I was like, oh, you know, whatever it is, okay, yeah. Now when I go and have conversations and I hear James Harrison um, or I hear other people bring up uh, participation trophies and it's, I'm like, well, you know, if you think about it, we've been groomed to this whole idea of participation trophy because we do want the individualized attention for our child in school, right? And so how dare us say, oh no, once you get into the athletic arena or once you get into the career arena, that now all of that goes into the window. It's how I've been conditioned. So why would I think of, of anything different? Um, it's, you know, it's critical. And, and again, having somebody that you can confide in is great that if your spouse can be both, but recognize if your spouse can right. be both, right? Not, not, not um, everybody has that, you know, <laughs> not everybody has that, that, that balance. Yeah. No. <laughs> Listen, you, you and I both, and again, we talk about it, accepting help. It's, that's been one of my biggest things. Um, you know, the person that I'm dating now, um, she, she's been an entrepreneur for some years, but she's also, you know, she has her MBA. Um, and so she, you know, it's funny, she just got laid off from a position cause you know, the business is, is floundering, not due to her, but just because that's just yeah. what's happening. And so like her assistance has been, you know, immeasurable, just even down to booking my flight or booking my hotel when I went to university of North Carolina, Greensboro. Uh, you know, I didn't have enough time. I'm sitting there doing other things. So I'm like, hey, can you just look up a hotel in that area? And she looked it up and she booked it. And my initial response was going to be, yo, what the F are you doing? Right? I didn't ask you to do that. Thankfully, I stopped myself and I said, Phil, what is it about you about trusting? Because we're talking about yeah. trust at the end of the day. Why don't you trust yourself enough to allow somebody to help you, right? And so, because we know that, especially as being an entrepreneur, no matter what business area of your expertise is, that trust is big. And a big component is trust of self, right? And so, yeah, it's, it's important to have these people with whom, with whom you can connect with, who can give you honest feedback. Um, she, she has some things in the works that she's doing. She's like, yo, give me your honest opinion. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> and I give her my honest opinion. Now, conversely, I'm as sensitive as they come. You've seen me cry at the TEDx. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard as hell. But I tell people, I say, listen, give me the critique, right? Now, allow, allow me room because I'm going to reject it. I'm going to reject it immediately. I know my process. I'm going to reject it. But an hour or two later, I'm going to sit back on it. I'm going to reflect on it and then be able to say, okay, this is what you mean, right? But again, that comes with understanding self, trusting your feelings and emotions going forward, which is, which is critical. And it's, it's something we rarely get taught to do. And, and where I think there's a focus more on learning to process our emotions when they're in interaction I, I want to go back to when you talked about the, the sending out the emails, you know, you send it every week and you don't get a response. And it's, it's all you want is somebody to acknowledge that you're there. You know, you start to feel like a person on a street corner asking for money that everybody averts their eyes when they walk by and they pretend that they're not there, which is one of the worst things we can do to a person. And it's an emotional interaction. Now sending emails is not 
like the struggle of a person having to ask for change on a street corner. I'm not saying that, but we are getting more trend and we are getting more aware about interactive emotions, but there's very little in training or support or acknowledgement about non-interactive emotions. That, that if you're an entrepreneur, you're gonna lock yourself in a room and bang away at a keyboard. You're gonna, you're gonna send out letters. You're gonna you know, cold call and not get anything back. That emotional burden is something largely unique to an entrepreneur. And, and before somebody comes back to me and says, yeah, but salespeople get the same thing, right? But salespeople go into sales, hopefully, because they have a, a passion for it or they have a skill to it or they have an emotional mindset, or they have an outgoing personality that makes them successful at sales. Most entrepreneurs I know don't become an entrepreneur because they're good at sales. They become an entrepreneur because they're good at something else. They're good at providing the service. And yet they have to teach themselves to become salespeople. They have to take on the emotional baggage and burden of being a salesperson while still focusing on what they're actually passionate about. That emotional switch is one we do not acknowledge in our communities. And I think most entrepreneurs do not acknowledge because they wanna tell people their victories. And if they tell people their, their defeats, they wanna tell it in that way that we do the classic, well, I had this really problematic day and here's how it went all along. And then here's how I built up from that and became a phoenix that rose from the ashes. Instead of, a, a friend of mine just said to me, instead of just telling the story about how it all went to ash <laughs> and then saying, I'm literally on fire and in ashes right now. I, I'm, there's no Phoenix to be found. Please help me understand how to process this. And we don't do that enough. We don't talk about it enough. We don't acknowledge it enough. And we don't, we don't build any mechanisms to deal with it. No, listen, listen, I, I completely agree. And with that, you know, I, as, I, as I spoke about masculinity and just the, the effects um, that it's having, again, it affects both men and women. Um, it's not gender specific, but it predominantly, we see it a lot within men, right? And so with this new idea of what masculinity looks like, um, it appears that, again, you're talking about having, you know, this emotional intelligence, which goes against the idea of masculinity again i i hate these terminology these terms just because at the end of the day i break it down we're talking about a healthy person versus an unhealthy person though that's the framework i like to use what's healthy healthy is is being phys, you know mentally strong physically fit um having emotional awareness and what have you and the converse is the is the opposite of those things um but just the, the where we are now in this conversation on masculinity, where we're, we're asked to be introspective, um, how has that has that impacted you in any way? Um, I, I know for me personally, it has. Just in in how um, I'm more just aware, right? I feel like a, there's a, a heightened sense of awareness and how I'm going about my day, how I'm going out about my interactions, even though I was aware um, as far as being vulnerable, um, as far as not being as, you know, rushed to judgment. Again, these aren't gender specific ideas. Um, and just how they've, you know, the idea of strength, how the, uh, the idea of uh, being persistent um, not showing any weakness, how they played a part in just your, your entrepreneurial journey and just your journey in life. 
Whew. I mean, this is always a big question. I, I knew we were going to talk about this. I, I want to hit on a couple of different areas. I know I, I'm very long-winded. Um, I, I want to talk about a little bit before I get into my own, uh, some of the community aspects that we have with masculinity and all, and you're saying like all these terms and labels and this, and what does it do and, and how does masculinity interact with the Me Too movement? Um, one aspect that, that I think is important, and, and I know, again, I'm saying this is a white, cisgendered, male, bearded, heterosexual guy, right? I, I understand. Okay. So everybody, if you want to stop listening, because I acknowledge that, then stop listening. Uh, sorry, not to your podcast, just to what I'm saying. Phil's awesome. Uh, don't, don't stop listening to Phil, just you don't have to listen to Brandon. Um, but if you're listening, and I'll, I'll tell you my view on this, one, I think we all can be more accepting we should all be more accepting that dual standards are the most corrosive through line in all of our communities. There are dual standards that affect and, and everyone, right? So there's a dual standard of let, let, let me, let me be bold and say something on race relations. I'm a white guy, please. Somebody don't try to crucify me afterwards for this, but you know, you have a white guy that looks at uh, an African-American man and says, well, I have this history of entrepreneurism. Why can't they pull themselves out of poverty? Well, that's stupid, sir. That's dumb. Whatever standard that you succeeded on, that's not the standard for them. That, that's creating a standard for them that actually is inherently a dual standard, that you're, that you're trying to judge someone based on yours. Every person is different, every experience is different, every set of challenges are different. Now, on the other side, um, a person asking another person to understand their struggle is very difficult because for many people, they've spent their entire lives trying to understand their own struggle. And then they, we turn around and we ask another person in 30 seconds to understand their struggle. Now, acknowledging struggle is not what I'm talking about. We can all acknowledge struggle. Exactly. That doesn't mean we understand exactly. it. I, I have a, a friend of mine, well, not as a good contact with, but I'm a Facebook acquaintance, and I've watched this person go through um, self-identifying from a, fem a woman to a man. And, and, I, and I'm so happy for this person. I'm so happy for him. I'm so happy that he's living his best life. Absolutely. But this person's in their late 30s. I know from when I was close to them in their 20s, we happened to work together in Beijing. I know it was a struggle for them then. And it took this person 38, 39 years to end up in this wonderful, awesome, I hope incredibly empowering life that they have always desired. And I think we all need to acknowledge, we all need to support we need to respect it and i do respect it what i don't like seeing though is when somebody that has taken a lifetime to come to terms with with who they are when they turn around and they yell at someone because in five seconds that person didn't come to terms with who they are in five seconds they didn't come come to terms with something that may or may not be confronting to them because it's different than their experience now, that doesn't mean that the person that finds it different from their experience gets the right to berate, belittle, prejudice, bigot, put down, be horrible. If you are disrespectful, if you are, that's a choice. That's an active choice to be disrespectful. So I do not believe in the choice, the ability to be disrespectful because it's outside of your experience. What I am saying, though, is that we need to be a little patient. If it took you 20 years to come to terms with who you are, it took an entire culture decades to come to terms with the, the trials and tribulations that have come and, and have influenced that, that maybe it's going to take another person more than five seconds to, to come to terms with that. 
Again, that doesn't permit, that doesn't excuse, that doesn't enable or empower bigotry or disrespect or not accepting. But it can be a lesson that we need to take our time on all sides. If you have a journey that you've gone through and it's an incredible truth and you found your truth, you have done better than almost anyone else on the planet. Everyone else that you are confronting on a daily basis probably doesn't understand themselves anywhere near as well as you do. And maybe we need to be just a little bit patient. That doesn't mean wait your turn. That doesn't mean sit down. That doesn't mean to don't demand your rights. Demand your rights. Scream for them. Fight for them. Get them. You deserve them. Every person deserves their rights. But when it comes to social interaction, we can take a little bit of time, just a little bit, to be patient on all sides. I was patient with my friend who took 38 years to come to where they are in their life. I hope that that person can be patient with somebody they meet in a 30-second interaction may need more than 30 seconds to fully come to terms with it. That, that, that's a big picture. I, I, I don't know, Phil. I mean, again, I, I say this is a white, male, bearded, heterosexual. And yeah, I'm not yeah, asking no, for it. I'm not asking for understanding for anything that I say. Be hard on me. I'm just saying that struggle is... No, what we're we're, we're talking about is we're talking about extending grace, right? We're talking about extending grace to people on on both ends, which is is difficult for people to do um, for whatever reason. Um, Again, when when we talk about mental health, when we're talking about any type of change, change is difficult it's a process. I always talk when I speak about my professor in college who said, Phil, in life you change to get something or to keep something. Um, it's taken me 30 some odd years to, to get to a point where, again, I was comfortable with myself, where I'm comfortable with my decisions, and I'm still working towards that. And I have to extend grace to myself because I recognize, listen, it took me 33 years to get here, right? So when I get frustrated at myself with you know, when I'm shaming myself, when it's self-doubt of myself, this might be something that I may be dealing with for the rest of my life. This isn't something that's going to be gone in a, in a year because I went to therapy for a year. I got 33 years prior to this that says, this is how you've behaved. This is how you've thought, right? And so it's not until I get more information and I offer myself grace, well, Phil, listen, you know what? Take a step back. Be gentle with yourself. All right, you know, that doesn't excuse the way you might be having negative self-talk, right? However, recognize that this is a journey, right? And you if you want to be, you don't want to, you know, approaches everything. You want to be mindful about your approach. You want to be mindful about your interactions, um, especially, you know, I know you mentioned the Me Too movement. Um, and I'm, I'm critical um, to a point where, you know, as I'm always mindful to say, do I feel like men are under fire, right? I definitely think men are under fire and need to be held accountable for their actions. However, with that said, I, you know, when we talk about the, some of the tenets um, about masculinity, if somebody buys into this, right, you recognize that with some men, and we're talking about approach, that demanding, demeaning, that that just doesn't work. You, you know, that, that type of approach. And so what I'm seeing, um, and, and just the people that, I, that I've seen, again, we're talking about social media where you just get a glimpse. Um, where It's this, we're not extending grace. It's, yo, men need to do X, Y, and Z. And it's just like, whoa, for some people, 
you know, this is a shot. Listen, you know, in all full transparency, when I was going, to, yeah, I was going to the club, you know, or to a bar to have some drinks and I want to have some drinks to loosen up. I'm on a date and I want the young lady to have some drinks to loosen up, not because I wanted to have sex with her or take advantage of her, but just because I wanted the climate to be a little more friendlier, right? Where we can engage a little more freer. And then it's like, well, that's rape culture. And it's like, oh, you know, let me, you know, I'm processing this. Allow me a second, right? Allow me a second to, to understand, you know, my behaviors um, and, and just this whole idea, this new shift in perspective. Because I'm not saying I'm against the shift in perspective. What I'm saying is if I'm pushing back, it's because I need further understanding. I would like to understand more. And it's not going to be given to me um, uh, in a, your response on an Instagram post or in 150 characters or on a Facebook post. Um, we've lost the art. The art of critical thinking has been lost. As you said, we want so much. We want immediate responses. That's something that somebody took 30 some odd years or in this case, you know, um, hundreds of years when we're to whether we're talking about, um, you know, feminism or we're talking about black feminism, whether we're talking about race relations for some, you know, it's, you know, somebody who's, you know, from Alabama, who's been growing up in this, this type of environment and they come up and they may have, they may say something. Prime example, um, forget that example. On a post of mine, um, this woman said, um, she said, you speak very well. Oh, I saw this right? conversation actually, <laughs> I saw this conversation. Yeah, <laughs> she said, you speak very well. And I was like, mm, yeah. mm. I, you, you, I, you know what? I don't know if you know, right? So I want to let you know, even though I don't take it as that, how it can be um, taken by somebody else, right? So I'm going to use this as a teachable moment. I could have cursed you out. I could have berated you and said, you're stupid for not knowing. But I'm like, listen, and I say this with love, just be mindful about you know, using that specific phrase because that's usually used, has been used for people of color um, because by people who have this, this general idea, this stereotype of how people of color may speak. And then they hear somebody who, who speaks, um, quote unquote, better. Um, and so it's like a backhanded compliment. And so, you know, I responded to her and we had conversation in, in direct messenger after that. Um, because she wanted to learn. Now, again, my approach, if I would have approached her in a different way, um, that opportunity might have been lost, right? And so, again, so we're talking about extending grace, because if we're not extending grace, then we can't expect people to really to learn. And, and it's hard. I mean, and look, I mean, this, this is, this is a, you know, the stuff of like semester long research projects and, and, <laughs> and books that are way smarter than I am and way more balanced than I am. But I, I agree with you. The extending growth, I know how hard it is. I know how hard it is to be patient, right? If you fought tooth and nail for the, for the gains, for the equality that we are hoping that everyone can actually have, you've had to fight for that. And you turn around and, and somebody comes at you in a way that, that, that undercuts that in any way, shape, or form, you're going you're gonna to fight back. You're, you're, you know, your elbows are going to be out. You, know, you rebound at the ball and you're, you're going you're gonna to shake everybody off, right? You know, so I understand that. So I'm not saying that 
just because, it, you know, because then we get into then another dual standard, like, oh, because you're the one that has actually created or, or grabbed or improved equality. Now you have to be nicer than all the people that were intolerant to you for centuries. No, I'm not asking that. I'm not asking for us to take a breath. I mean, I think we lose subtlety. We lose pausing with, with Facebook and with, you know, trolls and all that kind of stuff. I just think it's an important balance. Um, you know, the Me Too movement, movement if I, I, I think it's incredibly important. I hope that it has actual change. We can compare it to moving in the 90s that we thought was going to really create change, and arguably it didn't. So I'm hoping it has more value than that. And, and I don't mean value in terms of their point, the point of view behind the movement. I'm talking about value to our community. And, and by that, I mean creating a better sense of equality. Um, you know, uh, uh, we all make fun of Thomas Jefferson and his, you know, uh, more equal, you know, statement, but I actually think that that was pressing. I, I think that, that for a guy that owns slaves to write the phrase more equal, um, you know, we can talk about that there are equalities in certain areas of our society, but we want it to be more equal, um, weirdly. Uh, but you know, where I can be critical on it is where it's intolerant, where it undercuts the, the agency of the woman itself. You talk about going to a bar on a date, you know, <gasps> you took her to a bar. Well, I took her to a bar because she asked me to take her to a bar because she likes going to, you know, her agency was, I said, well, where do you want to go? And she goes, oh, I want to go to Ashton because they have cigars there. Well, that's, that's like very guy-ish. That's very, no, I like it. Okay, well, I'll take you there, you know. Oh, and then afterwards, somebody else might be like, oh, you took her there because you wanted to get her drunk and, you know, cigar will make it, you know, no, I, it was her agency and I supported that. The other part that I would say is, you know, Terry Crews. I, I watched him at the early part of the, the Me Too movement and I thought it was eventually more accepted, but, you know, he quickly came out and was like, well, look, I can talk about very similar things happening to me. And there was this early backlash of, no, you're a man. It can't have happened to you. Back off. This is a woman's issue. Don't, don't, don't try to mansplain to me. And it was like, I don't think, I don't think, I don't know. I'm just not like, we're best friends. You know, he's a celebrity. I'm not, uh, you know, but I don't think that's what he was trying to do. And, and that's where I would find critique where you have to figure out, is it just a women's movement? Is it a movement that was dedicated to stopping uh, harassment and sexual abuse? And those kind of things. Yeah. Those are two possibly different things. But if it's, if it's, if it's the second one, Terry Crews had just as much, ability to talk about it. The, the male accusers of Kevin Spacey had just as much ability and, and agency and, and, and right to, to talk about it and to be part of that fight back against what are truly harmful, uh, uh, you know, approaches and mindsets. Um, and that's hard. It's hard to navigate. As a man who wants to have a masculinity, it's hard to navigate this. It's hard to be right because you're often wrong. Um, it's, it's hard to have an opinion on some of these issues because you feel like you're going to get shouted down. It, it, it is experiencing for some of us, some of the intolerance that has been aimed at our peers that we didn't understand for decades and centuries and, and lifetimes and millennia. And that's hard for people. I'm not saying it should be easy on people to have to deal with that confronting, but we are in a turbulent time. We are in a period of change, change hopefully for the better, and, and hopefully we can find ways to breathe through some of it and make sure that everyone comes along with the change and, and, and learns and develops from it rather than being pushed into the shadows in a different way that will be harmful later. Because what we've learned is when you put, push hate into the shadows, it doesn't go away. It just comes back in a different way. It comes back potentially stronger. I think that that's one of the messages 
of watching the election of President Obama versus the election of President Trump that I felt like there was hate that we as a community decided, oh, we're post-racial. No, we're not. <laughs> no, 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 we're not. We're not. Stop saying that. Stop, stop believing that. Just because we elected President Obama, uh, uh, you know, president doesn't mean that everyone sings kumbaya and doesn't see divides. You know, some of the message of the yeah. Trump campaign is those still exist. The, the Charlottesville protests and the violence that went on there show us it still exists. We need to not pretend it's gone. We need to not push it in the shadows. We need to talk about it. We need to deal with it. But we need to take a breath while dealing with it and not repeat the mistakes as the pendulum swings back and forth that, that of what happens at the extremes. We, we can't do that to each other. We need to find a way forward. Uh, listen, I agree. Listen, we I, we could have had this right. conversation for about five hours now. B, listen, man, listen, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for, for joining me. Uh, you might be one of my first guests in like a long time, <laughs> in a long time. Because I'm trying, again, I'm trying to share more. I'm trying to be open because other people's experiences are just as important, you know, to my growth and to the growth of the people who will be tuning in. So listen, I, I want to thank you. Uh, for coming on and I appreciate you. Feel free to drop your information, your your business, your address, your your uh, website address, your email address, your social media info. Grasshopperstrategies.com, it helps you jump the competition, whether as an individual or a small business. We do agency work where we will do the stuff you don't have the time to do, but we also do coaching and mindset and motivation and the skill building that you need to be successful. Um, if you want to talk about my generational stuff, go to innermillennial.com. You'll see the TEDx, which I do love. Thank you so much. Um, I think it's valuable for all of us. It's a, it's a tool. It's an idea. It's a conversation starter. So innermillennial.com or for my corporate stuff and my business stuff and the stuff I can help you with as a preneur, entrepreneur and a solopreneur, grasshopperstrategies.com. And can they find you on Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, anything yeah, like that? Yeah, so my Facebook is at uh, Brandon Blackburn's Wire. You know, my, my full name, there's not really anybody else that has that name. Uh, and my Instagram is BrandonBD52. Um, I will tell you that I will be better. I'm funny. I'm great at getting my clients to have better social medias. Mine needs to get better. So hopefully, Phil, you can help me out with some of that because I always admire your stuff. <laughs> I appreciate it. I got you. I got you. Um, again, thank you. And as far as for me, this is hashtag you good man, the podcast. Uh, again, I think it's episode 23 or 24, something like that. Um, you could catch me at Phil underscore Quadify. That's Q-U-A-D-E-F-Y. You could catch the YouTube channel. Please subscribe. That's Quadify LLC. And check out the website, www.quadifyllc.net. You get some merch. Like, I don't know how this looks. It might be backwards, but still, this is what anxiety looks like. Feel free to support me. The money goes to my daughter's tuition. <laughs> so I appreciate you guys. <laughs> All right, Brady. Thanks, thanks man. I'll be a